Welcome back to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith and Marriage. I'm your host, Dr. Mario Sacasa, and happy to share this episode with you today. This episode is part two of my Dating and Discernment Advice series. It's no secret that compulsive pornography use has become a rising issue in our culture. Thanks to the ubiquity of smartphones, the ability to access pornographic images and videos is easier than ever. And leading scientists in brain research are starting to show the detrimental effects porn is having on our neurobiology. There are many tremendous resources available to help you in recovery. So my focus for this show is on how pornography detrimentally impacts a person's ability to discern their vocation in life. What guidelines should someone entering the seminary with this issue look for? What should I do if I'm a priest who struggles with porn or masturbation? When should I seriously consider dating if I have this compulsion? Or how involved should I be in my spouse's recovery? I take a deep dive into these questions and joining me on the show today is Father Sean Kilcally, a priest of the Diocese of Lincoln, Nebraska. Father Sean is a nationally recognized speaker on the topic of porn and how the church should respond to people caught in its grip. His voice is clear and filled with compassion. In this episode, Father Sean shares his history with sex addiction and how helping others in their recovery is a matter of evangelistic importance. We define our terms and clarify what we mean when we say the word addiction. We talk about how seminaries should handle porn use and the healthy expectations seminarians should have for themselves before stepping out of formation. He shares his particular dedication towards the recovery of other priests. And lastly, we turn our attention to offer guidelines for those of you who are dating or married. We cannot bury our head in the sand about this issue anymore. And my hope for this episode is that it provides some clarity for your discernment. If you are struggling with this issue, please, please, please reach out. I will point you in the direction of many great resources available to help you with your recovery. You are not alone and God is with you. This is a beautiful and challenging episode. Thank you so much for listening. When the show is done, please take a second to message me your thoughts on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Mario Sacasa. Okay, let's get into this interview with Father Sean Kilcally. Father Sean Kilcally, welcome to the Always Hope Podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing great, Mario. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely, man. It's a gift. So first question I really want to ask you is, how does it feel being being known as the porn priest? Um, <laughs> yeah, so I've been trying to quell that a little bit, actually. Um, so I have a dear friend, uh, Ron Haas, who is the CEO of Covenant Eyes, uh-huh. and um and there was a couple of times at the National Coalition on Sexual Exploitation Conference that he got up and he kind of introduced me as uh, the porn priest. Um, but more recently, I was I was actually speaking to a priest um, that I met at a conference and and he he was very sincere in saying to me like, please do not call yourself porn priest. Yeah, like call yourself like the human priest. Um, and uh, because in reality, like I talk about love and Jesus, sure, 
And I only talk about pornography because it gets in the way of talking about love and Jesus. Amen. And, um, and I kind of see it as a necessary prerequisite to like encountering Christ. And, uh, and so, but yeah, so it's kind of a mixed bag. I'm not going to start pornpriest.com anytime soon. Um, That's not your handle on Instagram uh, or uh, it Facebook. Is, <laughs> it is not my handle. Um, it's but all I good. Do, uh, yeah. It's yeah. all good. It's all good. No, I get it. When, when I was at the seminary, I was always the guy who gave this talk on pornography or chastity issues. And so the, after a while, whenever they would see me at the front of the room, if I was the one coming in and giving a lecture, immediately there were groans like, oh, here comes Dr. Sakasa talking about porn again. You know, I'm like, uh-huh. I talk about other things, you know, they're like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess just a, a brief uh, history lesson here or, or a little bit about your story. What got you into talking about pornography and why is this just the love and the theology of the body? I know you speak about all those issues, but but particularly about pornography, what got you into it? Like, why did you decide that this is something that, that I want to dedicate some real time and energy towards? Yeah. So, so that's, there's a really long story, like the abbreviated one. Um, like first the family that I came from, uh, you know, my father was married, had three children, divorced. My mother was married, had two children, divorced. They married each other. I was born. Um, then my mother died when I was about two. And my dad married my stepmother and they had three children and then they divorced when I was in college. And so this question of like, what is family life supposed to be has always been a prominent question in my life. Um, Like I remember being young and thinking to myself, like there's probably a different way that love is expressed than I'm experiencing it here. You know, and I know that my parents loved me that, you know, my siblings love me, that I, you know, from all external points of view, like our family was pretty normal. Um, but my experience of it was just that, like, there's something that's not right here. Um, you know, I had had a major loss in losing my mother at such a young age. And so this kind of quest for like, what is love and what is it supposed to be has always been in my heart. And then when I was in seminary, my deacon year, I spent the entire summer reading the theology of the body audiences, um, kind of put together a weekly class that I gave that summer. And so my interest in like exploring theology of the body started to grow from there. In 2009, I went to grad school at the John Paul II Institute for Marriage and Family Life, um, came back in 2013, and that those studies were instrumental in my own healing process, my own discovery of my identity as a beloved son of the Father. Um, you know, and like many of those conversions, conversion is always kind of painful at the same time as it's grace-filled. Um, so... So when I got back in 2013, I was very excited to revamp our chastity education. And uh, and so I rewrote a week-long curriculum using the anthropology from the Institute, and I was really proud of it. And then after a couple months, I realized that that curriculum is not going to do anything. Like, it's not going to work. Uh, because you can't teach the truth, beauty, and goodness of God's plan for marriage and sexuality to an entire culture that's being bombarded by the anti-message. And 
if Jesus is right when he says, blessed are the pure of heart, for they shall see God, then that means the impure of heart cannot see God. And the age of exposure to pornography had dropped down to between 8 and 11 at that point. Every kid has a smartphone. 90% of boys are getting exposed to hardcore pornography before they leave high school. 60% of girls. Nobody's talking about this. And, and unless we get them off of pornography, there's no way of encountering the beauty that uh, our Lord wants to give to them. You know, and there's a relationship between those things. Like some people want to say, well, beauty will overpower the pornography. But at the same time, the degradation of sexual ethics has caused an eclipse of God, says Pope Benedict. So if you're stuck in pornography, you can't recognize beauty. And therefore, beauty in and of itself can't be the primary solution. Yeah, that's a two awesome points. I'm, I'm always struck by how God, you, how economical God is. I would say, in that He uses all the circumstances in our lives for our own salvation, and that He would draw you out of the circumstances in your experience, and how you said so beautifully that you've always had this question of longing for love, and seeking that you have found the truth in Jesus, and in the, and in a particular way through John Paul II's catechesis. But then out of that desire, you can connect also with others who are looking for that as well. The years that you were in Rome, what, what, what was the time there? You said you came back in 2013? Right. So when, when did you start your time in Rome? 2009. So 2009, yeah. I, I think the studies, you may know this, right? It's pretty cool. 2012 is kind of the marker. Like that's when the, the country, for the first time, over 50% of the country had, had the iPhone, had the smartphone right. in their pocket. And so coming back in 2013, I can certainly understand having been away when that kind of crossover happened come back and be like, whoa, everybody's looking at porn now because everybody's got a phone. Uh -huh. I mean, it's like this isn't, you know, hiding magazines under the, the mattress anymore. This is everybody has access to it in, in their pockets. Um, so before we really go into what I think will be the focus of our episode, talking about how porn habits influence one's discernment briefly, like just. How bad is it right now? I mean, for people who don't know or people who are, who are doubting that porn can even be a quote unquote addiction. I mean, just like, where do we stand right now as a country with this issue? So, so in my pastoral experience, um, I have met with people that are, uh, 12 people that are 22 people that are 72 and what's common in all of those people is that they were exposed to pornography when they were 10, 11, or 12. You know, the 72-year-old was exposed to pornography like that he found in the woods or it was like Uncle Joe's stash that he stumbled upon and it piqued his curiosity, kind of activated some, you know, confusion, um, led to preoccupation and going back to it to try to figure out what I just saw. Um, so the difference now is that basically every single 12 year old has this opportunity to stumble into in air quotes, uncle Joe's stash, mm. except they're stumbling into it on their iPhone. And, and so even in really good 
you know, families where they would never have pornography magazines, they'd never have pornography movies, they'd never have access on their televisions, um, inadvertently their children have access through electronic devices. And so they're having the same experience of stumbling into somebody's stash at home. And I frame it that way to say, you know, that it's not really their fault. Um, and we just kind of got caught not paying attention <clears throat> when the technology shifted. So, <clears throat> so right now, how bad is it? Um, like I would just say like our culture is very wounded and, and the stats do look like, you know, 90% of boys, 80% of girls, by the time they leave high school, the stats are, are first exposures between eight and 11. There are other studies that show that high pornography users are found to score like higher on acceptance of violence against women, acceptance of the rape myth, like not enforcing standards with regard to sexual crimes. Um, so in other words, if you were a porn addict and somebody committed a sexual crime, you're less likely to enforce a strong penalty because it distorts our perception of what's normal, what's not normal, where are boundaries supposed to be or where are they not. Peer-to-peer um, -peer sexual abuse is on the rise because kids are reenacting what they see in pornography. And when I say that, I mean like, you know, eight-year-old brother with five-year-old sister. Um, and I have like experienced that when people call me, you know, looking for resources. Um, so that's all, you know, that's all pretty dark. Right. But, but on the flip side of that, um, I've seen like families transformed. Um, I've seen like kids go from mom and dad live in chaos and they're fighting all the time to mom and dad love each other. Um, I've, I've watched the lives of some priests go from, I dread Sundays because I have to be around people and I'm stuck in my own isolation to sending me messages that say, I can't wait for Sunday. How did this possibly happen? How is it possible my life is so good? You know, and, and so sometimes people will say things to me like, oh my gosh, you just have to deal with this dark stuff all the time. But I also get to experience this like light and healing that hardly anybody gets to experience, you know, and that's the life of Jesus. And it's the life of the apostles. And, you know, it's the life of an evangelizer who goes into a foreign country and people like hear the gospel preach for the first time. Um, and so, so I really, you know, for me, addressing pornography is simply like the first step in an evangelization process, mm -hmm. um, kind of a necessary first step in an evangelization process. Yeah. And, and necessary and incredibly practical one. I mean, it's, it's the, the long standing tradition of the church that we have to go and take care of those who are sick. Uh, that's the mandate. Um, and the church has, has always done that first. And we vented hospitals. Um, Mother Teresa went out and literally was grabbing people off the streets and just doing the best that she can to take care of their, their wounds and, and their sicknesses. And so this is no different um, as far as an, an evangelist, a, a servant of God, trying to go out and, and take care of, of people's issues to, to help them see the light of Christ. Um, and I think as you're talking, what, what comes to my mind, of course, is the passage of where, well, where sin abounds, grace abounds evermore, um, and that we can, we can bring light into those dark moments. Um, 
So for the conversation right now, addiction, can, what's your working definition of that term? How do we define a porn addiction? Uh, so like Patrick Carnes would say like, Sexual addiction is a pathological relationship with a mood-altering substance or behavior. Um, what does that mean in layman's terms? <laughs> in layman's terms, that means that I have a relationship with a behavior, right? And I use a behavior to change my mood. So, so like we're created for connection. We're created for bonding. We're created to be in relationship, right? John Paul II says man cannot live without love. He's a being that is incomprehensible for himself. His life is senseless. If love is not revealed to him, if he does not encounter love, if he does not experience it and make it his own, if he does not participate intimately in it. And so we're created for connection with people. And, and so in any addiction, then our primary connection becomes with a thing instead of a person. You know, if I go back to my room at night and I've had a hard day and I'm really drained and I just need some rest and I really, I need to take refuge and I go home and I turn on Netflix to take refuge. In that moment, I believe that Netflix is my most reliable thing that I can do to give me relief, you know? And, and in that sense, like in that moment, I have an addictive relationship with Netflix because for some reason, I think Netflix is more reliable than calling my friend on the phone or more reliable than praying. Um, and I just have to acknowledge that. And, uh, and so, you know, I have a personal practice of I call a friend on the phone before I watch Netflix um, because I need to be connected with people. Um, some of the other like ways I walk that definition down then is like it's when you rely on a thing instead of a person to regulate your emotions when you take refuge in a substance, right? Psalm 71 says in you, O Lord, I take refuge. Um, another framework that I use is it's an inability or resistance to being alone with God. You know, an inability or resistance to being alone with God. Like, I don't know how to be alone with the Lord. And therefore, I need this thing or this behavior to distract me from the world. Or to distract me from myself. So to the degree that one chooses the behavior or the substance over relationship, to the degree that, that one is choosing the behavior over God is how you would say is to the degree that somebody's addicted? Is that a fair way of kind of characterizing what you're saying there? Like I would say like that's the relational dynamic going on in addiction. Got it. Um, like the, you know, there's 10 criteria for addiction, mm -hmm. right? Uh, like it's an out of control behavior. I feel like this behavior has control over me. Mm -hmm. I continue to do this behavior despite I have negative consequences in my life. Uh, I have losses, um, inability to fulfill obligations. Um, like those are four of 10 and I can't think of all 10 right now. <laughs> That's okay. You uh, did good. You did well, good memorizing all of JP2's quote earlier. So, so you're good. Yeah. That, <laughs> you can tell what I present on most. Um, <laughs> Certainly. No, but I think, I, I think you're on it. The, the one of inability to stop despite negative consequences is kind of one of the hallmark, I guess, definitions there. Um, but certainly I, I guess the, the other thought that I have here is, I've had other conversations with people when I was in my master's and, and doctoral programs who would just kind of 
almost disregard the, the capacity to even have a sexual addiction or a porn addiction or have some people in my family who I, I say that I give these lectures to and they're just kind of like, no one has a porn addiction. It's just a heightened libido or something like that. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, like if for something as powerful as our sex drive, if we can be addicted to gambling, for example, right? I mean, how could we not even admit or the possibility that we could be that, that we could fall into into this a very unhealthy relationship with with sex or porn? Well, right. And and there's the experience of many, many, many people that their sexual behaviors were out of control. And if you do something that you don't want to do, there's something going on there. You know, the World Health Organization has recently defined compulsive sexual behavior disorder. Um, so they didn't use the word addiction and they're not classifying it as an addictive disorder. But essentially, it's the same thing, right? Like I have this compulsion to do things that I don't want to do, which means if you're a Catholic Christian – and you go to confession and you say, I firmly resolve to sin no more and to avoid the near occasions of sin. But then you don't actually avoid the near occasions of sin. You have some kind of a compulsion, right? Either you're lying every time you go to confession or you have a compulsion. And I think it gives more grace to say you have a compulsion. I would agree because with I that. Just don't, I just don't think that that many people actually, you know, are maliciously abusing the sacrament of reconciliation. Right. Yeah, I would agree. That's, it's very merciful the way you said that. Um, something you said earlier that I want to kind of jump on, and you mentioned this in one of your lectures that I saw recently, a uh, presentation you gave at 2018, the National Engaged Encounter Conference. I'll have a link to that uh, in the show notes for the listeners if they're interested in, in listening to it. That's a YouTube video. Um, but you, something you said right now is that the blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And that particular beatitude has, uh, has struck your, your imagination. And you said, just kind of like you said just a little bit ago, that it, it, it works both ways. That when we are pure in heart, we are able to see God. But when we struggle with issues of impurity, it's actually very difficult to then see God. Um, and so not in judgment, not in condemnation, but just really just kind of almost like a matter of fact that if I struggle with impurity in my heart, it's going to be more difficult for me to be able to, to see and experience God. What, what more can you say about that? Okay, so Pope Benedict XVI, when he was speaking to the Pontifical Council on the Family in December 2011, says, uh, the new evangelization depends largely on the domestic church. In our time, as in times past, the eclipse of God, the spread of ideologies contrary to the family, and the degradation of sexual ethics are connected. Right. So the eclipse of God, the spread of ideologies contrary to the family, and the degradation of sexual ethics are connected. Which means if we have this degradation of sexual ethics, we can't see God anymore. He's eclipsed. And... Um, and that's and that's really common in the in the pastoral work I do. It's very obvious how that happens. A guy will come in after three months of sobriety, like three months, no pornography, no masturbation, and he'll say, "Father, like everything's brighter. Like, like, did you see like how green the leaves on the trees are today? And like, like I saw that like people are beautiful, and like I mean, I like, I never even knew like things were so beautiful." And, uh, and we just don't see that anymore because our affect gets becomes dulled by 
you know, the way that we've altered our brain chemistry. And, and I had this experience when I was in Rome and because I had, my father died in 2006, a year after I was ordained. I never grieved. I was kind of a workaholic hero rescuer. You know, I've learned much from Al-Anon meetings since then. Um, and when I got to Rome, I was pretty burned out and I was compulsively binge watching shows and it was really a problem. Like in this depression I got into also because the teaching of the church was crashing into the family I grew up in and I didn't feel like I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. And so I spent hours and hours and hours binge watching shows. And then I went to therapy for the summer, uh, had three months of no screens because I was just super disciplined about therapy. Three months, no screens. Went back to Rome, walked into St. Peter's and was like, holy cow, this place is amazing. And I had been to mass at St. Peter's so many times. And it never struck. It never struck me. But when in removing that and removing that false kind of reality – the real reality strikes us and our humanity at the core of our humanity. And so, so impurity does keep us from seeing, seeing God in creation and relationships. You know, I had another, I had a guy who came in and saw me and he didn't think he had any addictions Then we kind of realized he might have a sexual addiction. And uh, he went home and he got pornography and masturbation out of his life, came back after two months and he was so grateful. He's like, thanks for the therapy referral. Thanks for, you know, I've been seeing my priest for spiritual direction. Um, but the weird thing is I was in the car with my son the other day, who's eight. And he just kind of looked over at me and said, I like the new dad. Beautiful. You know, I like the new, like out of the mouth of an eight-year-old, I like the new dad. And what happened, he just became more able to be in relationship with his son and then his son was able to experience the love of God like, through the love of his father. Mm. And in that sense, the pure of heart see God Amen. and we come to reveal God. Amen. Amen. Hello, this is Dr. Mario, and I'm taking a quick break from my conversation with Father Sean Kilcali. To remind you that Always Hope is a proud production of Willwood's Faith in Marriage. At faithinmarriage.org, we have a number of great resources available to help you in your marriage or vocational journey. Please check out our website and take a second to read my blog. I got some great content that'll help you see God's goodness in the challenges of life. So pornography, impurity... Um, gets in the way of that, eclipses that, to use Benedict's words, and prevents us from being able to really see God in, in the larger cultural context, but, but more intimately within our own heart. I, I just, for the focus of today, how then can somebody discern a vocation adequately? How can we still hear God's call, which is what a vocation is, a, a response to a calling of God, if, if that impurity exists within our heart? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and I think, you know, in my own life, uh, you know, I had, um, yeah, I was like a full blown sex addict when I went to the seminary. I didn't know that. 
I thought I was like the man. Um, at that time in my life, I was, I was in the army. I was at a five year service obligation and, but I'd always felt like God wanted me to be a priest since I was young. And, uh, but the tension of that was really difficult. And so I am fully cognizant of the fact that I used sexual sin in order to eclipse God because I just wouldn't feel like God's calling me to a priest and all this tension if I was stuck in sexual sin. And eventually I knew I needed to change my life. And I knew that at one point God had called me, the Lord had called me and, and I kind of went to the seminary and part of my discernment, and I never would have said this at the time, part of my discernment was like this desperation move. Like if I go to the seminary, that will get this out of my life. And that worked for you. And it, it didn't, you know, <laughs> it got out of my life. Right. Yeah. But it wasn't from walking through the doors of the seminary. You know, sometimes we have this romanticized idea of how our Lord works and how grace works. And, yeah. and, uh, we kind of think if I'm generous enough to give my whole self to Jesus, then he's going to heal everything as a reward for deciding to enter into priesthood or religious life, yeah. um, which is really messed up thinking. So, so I think that there's the ability to enter into like to have an intellectual discernment to intellectually say like, yes, like I want to do this, but there's not a complete surrender of one's heart if we're still enslaved to sin. And this is the most common form of denial that I see among faithful people is that I can be holy and have a periodic pornography and masturbation issue. And because these things don't go together, Jesus says you can't serve God and mammon. So you can't be holy and be an addict because being an addict means you're enslaved to sin. And, and I don't want to say that in a judgmental way. I'm just saying that like if you're enslaved to sin, you need mercy because that's the first stage of the spiritual life. The first stage of the spiritual life is to acknowledge I'm a sinner that needs mercy. I receive mercy and then as I respond to that mercy, I enter into the purgative way. And, uh, and a lot of times, like people that I know in discernment, they haven't really ever received mercy. They're just trying to be in the purgative way. And, uh, and in my own life, I know it wasn't until I decided to pray like a pagan that our Lord started working on my heart. And when I say pray like a pagan, I mean, like, I'm just going to like ask Jesus to reveal how much he loves me. And that's really all I'm going to focus on is being a beloved son. What does that mean? How do I grow into that? And do I, am I really confident that our Lord is there for me? Like, am I really confident that he has my back? Am I confident that if I really give my whole heart to him, that he's going to take care of it? Um, because that's like a core question of all of our lives is, do I believe that Jesus is Jesus? Like, do I believe that God is there for me or not? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the question. You know, we think about the spiritual life, the purgative, the illuminative and the, the unitive way, those three distinctions. The one you're focusing on is, is again, just the beginning, but that question of faith is one that we carry throughout our whole lives. Yeah. Um, and so the, for the man or the woman who, who says as a last stitch effort, like you, like in your experience, I, 
you know, I'm just going to go to the seminary or I'm going to enter the convent. And that's the thing that's going to, that's going to, um, you know, make me better magically. And I found that attitude often with the guys and maybe they'll get a couple months in or something. And they're like, all right, I'm rolling. This is great. And then they hit midterms. And then it's like all the stress comes right back to them and they, they go right back into old habits. And then, Mm -hmm. and then they feel even more shame or more guilt or questioning their own discernment. And so I do think that God blesses the sincerity of somebody's heart, but entering the seminary isn't some magic trick. It's not like all all of a sudden I became, I entered the convert or I went to the seminary and all my bad problems are just going to magically go away. That that's not the way God works. That's not the way grace works. Certainly God will respond to the, to, to, to your desire of of giving everything to him, but it's not going to happen overnight. It's not like some, I said, like some magic trick that, oh, this is it. You know, I just entered the seminary and bam, I'm holy. Um, and that's just a, that's a bad way of thinking of your discernment. Right. Um, so what we're saying here with regards to the, the program for priestly formation, the PPF of the, which is the U S bishops governing document for, for seminaries. The term that gets used a lot in that is affective maturity. Um, and right. what that means is the ability to, to have self-possession of one's passions in order to discern, right. God's call within me, but also to be pastorally available. So moving along with this, then, um, how does one's affective maturity get influenced by by porn? I mean, with everything you're saying, I guess maybe I'm answering the question you already is um, if porn makes creates this disconnect between your intellect and your 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 affect, if it eclipses God primarily in the place of your own heart, then that makes it very difficult to to have empathy. It makes it difficult to have vulnerability within yourself. Right. Um, that makes it difficult just being attentive to the various movements within your own heart. Like, so where do we begin? Where do we begin if that's, if that's that what's going on in our life? Yeah, so, uh, so one of the books I've been recommending to a lot of seminarians lately is Feeling and Healing Your Emotions by Conrad Bars. And where he, he does a really amazing job of synthesizing Thomism with that, you know, understanding what is affective maturity. And because it also means I, I know what I'm feeling and I can respond to what I'm feeling in a way that's leading me to the virtuous end that I'm looking for. Um, and so, so if I'm regulating my feelings or changing my mood with a substance or with a behavior, like if I'm using my sexuality to change my mood, that's the most obvious sign that affective maturity is not present. And so in order to grow an affective maturity, we have to stop avoiding our emotions through behaviors and actually confront the emotions that we're feeling. Now, another experience of guys in recovery is maybe three months in, four months in, definitely six months in, they'll come to group and they'll say things like, I'm having these things called emotions. And like, I really, I, I don't know what they are. <laughs> like I've never really had them before. And so, so what are they doing? They're growing in affective maturity. And so, so the PPF also says that men should be free. Like they should live continence for two years before entering the seminary, which means that they should be free from masturbation for two years before entering. Now, most people would say, well, you're not going to have any seminarians then. Um, my response to that is just that 
if they don't have two years of continence, which means they have a deficiency in affective maturity, we're making an exception to the policy or we're making an exception to the guideline. Therefore, we should have exceptional formation for them, which means they have to be in therapy. They have to be in group and they have to be transparent about their progress because the promise that they're going to make someday is, in fact, to live perfect continence for the sake of the kingdom. And they should be able to confidently make that promise and not just kind of like, I hope so. Um, and, and again, it's not their fault. This is why I do so much parent education because parents need to raise chase children so that they go to college. And then like campus ministry needs to work with their people at college before they go to the vocation instructor, the vocation instructor needs to have a good standard. And then the college seminary needs to really work on this. And then the theology, and then like we'll have priests who like live joyful chaste celibacy in theory. Yeah. And, and no judgment, but um, certainly guys um, who do struggle with this, obviously they experience a lot of shame. And so they may struggle bringing this forward, even in their evaluations, the formal evaluations. And it's not until after the fact that, this gets disclosed um, because, because there is fear of losing the vocation. There is fear of, of losing uh, admittance into the seminary. Um, but I would say, you know, for a guy who does struggle with this, um, to, to have courage and to reveal. And if, and if God's plan is that you do need to take another year or two to get healthy uh, before you cross the threshold of the seminary, then, then do that. You know, that, that's, that's an invitation by God. Um, so that you can work on your health first before you can start working on your formation. Yeah. And, and I also think it's the responsibility of seminary formators to be safe people for the seminary and to disclose too, um, which is, I think is reasonable to, to set up, you know, okay, you have this much time, like you have three years, right? Three years is how much time it took St. Peter to go from get away from me. I'm a sinful man to preaching the gospel at Pentecost. Three years is the amount of time the RCIA is supposed to be. Three years is the time it takes to have a conversion. It's also the average time it takes for somebody to recover from sexual addiction. So you have three years from the time you enter to be able to live continence and, and then just be transparent about that. So like, there's no fear of getting kicked out until like you get to that benchmark and anybody who's still like struggling at that benchmark, you know, for their own good should leave because I know the misery and I've talked to so many priests who know the misery of living a double life, you know, and how do you preach the truth about these things that are so important for our world when we're not living the truth and we don't know it from experience. And, um, so I think there's a way to go with that. And so um, for people who are listening that don't know this, seminary formation typically is, is if a man has a, already has a degree, a college degree, it's two years of pre-theology, which is the study of philosophy, and then four years in theology with a pastoral year in there, depending on the diocese that they're in or something else. So three years would put somebody kind of at the halfway mark if we're looking at right. six years total. Um, and so there's still ample time for them to, to say, okay, it's, it, it's time for me to, to take a step aside and work on my continued growth before we get real heavy into the latter years, which is no longer prep, no longer form like preparation. It's like, I mean, the sermon, it's preparation. And now right. those last two years, it's all about, okay, you've made a decision. You're going to be a priest. Now let's prepare you for the practical realities of what that is. 
how to say mass as a deacon, how to say mass as a priest. And, and you have to know within your heart that, that that's what God is calling you to before you can even start getting into those practicums. Um, so you're saying then, stepping out of formation, guys should really consider that if, if they get to the three, four-year mark and they're not really making progress within the system. If the system right, is trying to help them. should be able to have a year of continence within that three-year window. Okay. And if they don't have a year, then they should step out. Now, I work with guys all the time who, once they go to Sexaholics Anonymous meetings and they're in therapy, um, sometimes they have to do some like trauma work, um, but they get they end up with a year of sobriety fairly, you know, quickly. Like there's a priest I've worked with, and he had a year of sobriety from the time he started going to meetings. Mm. He just needed to go to meetings. And part of it for him was just like he was so ready to go to meetings because he had tried everything that didn't work. Yeah. And um, and that was kind of a formal act of surrendering was saying, I cannot fix this on my own. I need people outside of me. And he started going to meetings and he got a really good sex addiction treatment therapist. And he had a year of sobriety like out of the chute. That's awesome. And uh, And so – so it's not a standard that's too high. And oftentimes I think that our standard can be too low um, because talking about addiction, one of the criteria is not frequency, right? Like frequency of acting out is not an addiction criteria. So, um, so people will say, well, I only act out monthly or only act out every six weeks or I only act out when I go home. But if every single time you walk into your high school bedroom, you act out, you don't have the habit or the virtue of chastity. No, if there's something about this little environmental factor that makes you act out, you don't have the virtue of chastity. You know, you might be white knuckling in the seminary, you might be like needing a structure and, um, but the virtue is not there. If every time you go into your high school bedroom, you act out. Yeah, no, it's a really great distinction about frequency because I know sometimes that that kind of gets brought up. Um, but it's if that mood altering is always there or if the structure is removed and you don't have the inner resolve to be able to say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, filters go a long way. Having the systems in place to prevent access to seeing Uncle Joe's magazines um, are, is is there. But one has to cultivate the interior strength of, of, of self-denial. Now, Father Sean, I know we've been talking a lot about seminarians here, but what about priests? Okay, what about guys who, this is a great guideline, three years, awesome. They didn't follow that, okay? And, yeah. and now we're into the priesthood um, and we're seeing guys who are coming forth with this issue, even in the priesthood and bringing the struggle into the priesthood. Again, what, just what, what words of encouragement could you offer somebody like that? Yeah, I, I really feel this is probably what I'm most passionate about is um, is working with my brother priest and I have a great love for my brother priests and and so you know I think that the main thing is that like it's possible to get help you know and I, and I think in the modern like in the current climate it's really hard right because because our brains go to catastrophic thinking you know like 
somebody struggles with pornography, is it child pornography? Are they going to go to federal prison? Um, they're struggling with pornography, then they're going to act out with people like they need to go away to inpatient treatment forever. Um, like these are fears that we have. Or will everybody think something? Will everybody think they're, you know, abusing a kid, which they're not. Um, and so, so my general, like, guidelines or principles that, you know, these are things that are my opinion, right? They're Father Sean's opinion, um, is if a priest crosses a flesh boundary with a person, then they really do need to step aside from ministry for a specified period of time. Because at that point, then their behaviors have become so escalated that now they've, they've violated their vows with another person. There's another person who knows about it. They could always like go to the paper or something and, and you need to, t- to, to step out because obviously there's a need for deep conversion, you know, in one's life. If they're struggling with solitary sins like masturbation and pornography, um, there's ways to get help. And I've seen priests who they just go to outpatient treatment and like they just go to the ITAP website, which is the website where you can find a therapist locator for therapists who are specialized in sexual addiction treatment. Um, they call and interview the therapist and say like, look, I'm a priest and I'm living celibacy and I need to know that you're not going to try to pathologize my vows. Um, sometimes in that conversation, I'll say, I know that your ethics state that you aren't going to violate somebody's morals, but I just want to like verify that with you so that I can be confident in referring to you. Um, and I gently remind them that that's what the professional ethics state And, uh, and I've seen guys do amazing with therapists, even therapists who weren't Catholic, um, because the non-Catholic therapist actually was able to call them out a little more than they'd ever been called out before. Yeah. Cause sometimes Um, the Catholic therapists can fall into parishioner mode and uh, sometimes we don't challenge, we don't challenge father. It's hard having a dual relationship. Like my current, I currently see a therapist who's Catholic and, and I intentionally, like I don't wear my collar into the appointment. Um, she's very good with her boundaries, but it, I think part of it for me too is like, okay, I'm not a priest in this setting cause I'm very tempted to want to collaborate with this person in the future. Um, but I've never collaborated with her before, which is like, yes, I can go see her. Um, so anyways, so doing that and finding an essay group, like guys do amazing when they go to sexholics anonymous 12 step meetings and, And that's really scary for guys to go to a meeting because you don't know who you're going to see or who's going to see you. Um, But we did – there is an online um, meeting that's just priests and and they're just like good guys who have struggled with this. They're just guys who got exposed to porn when they were 10 and the seminary didn't like really like help them along the way. and I've been willing to do like I'll do a free assessment for any priest who wants to do a free assessment, you know, if they really want to look at their life and they're free to send me, you know, to look me up online, send me an email and um, and I can send them the code and we'll talk on the phone. And then and then I would do that. You know, I've never made that in a uh, bold sweeping statement on a podcast. I've never made that <laughs> offer before. Um, but I would be willing to, to do that for them because would there's like a ladder of shame in the church, you know, it's, it's kind of like single guy, single girl, 
mm-hmm. married guy, married woman, seminarian, deacon, priest, bishop, religious sister. And, uh, and the farther up that ladder we are, the more difficult it is to get help when we need it. And, um, and I know of, you know, diocese where priests have actually formed meetings, but they're doing a 12 step meeting, you know, and they're just like, okay, we want to be different. And I would love to change the environment so that really like (laughs) if you're not in a 12 step meeting, like that's the problem. You know, like, like, how is it that you're okay? You know, like, cause I know the guys who go to the 12 step meeting are like working on living a chase life. Right. Um, the other guys I don't really know. Right. And I'm not trying to cast suspicion on everybody. No, of course. But I just really wish that, um, we could normalize that a little bit more because we all grew up in this culture where we were bombarded with sexual images from the time we were young. And, um, and working the steps, I think, is good for everybody. Um, Do you see a difference generationally in terms of the ability to talk about it? And, and the reason I ask is, I know you know the the Barna study, the porn phenomenon that came out a couple years ago, and they had a yeah. they had a section in there, and I know that for pastors, they had a section in there how pastors, um, you know, their opinions or, or behaviors related to pornography. And it's a it's not a Catholic study, so it's looking primarily at, at Protestant pastors. Um. And they said something like one in five youth pastors uh, struggle with this issue or claim to struggle with it. One in seven senior pastors claim to struggle with it. Mm-hmm. But what struck me the most where I thought there was a greater disparity between youth pastors and then senior pastors was in how comfortable they felt talking about this to trusted friends, to their spouses, right. to elders in the church. I mean, that that's really where I saw the disparity when looking at the study. Do you feel that kind of translate over within the Catholic church that maybe the younger guys are a little bit more open about talking about this or, or not? Um, I think, I think so. It just, I think generally speaking, young people are more willing to be transparent about their lives. Yeah, that's true. Uh, they've kind of grown that's up true. that way. They're tired of fake relationships on social media. Um, they don't trust people unless they're authentic. And so they're just really more willing to disclose things and, and then when they start getting help, they just tell everybody that they got help and it's amazing and it's going so well, um, within the priesthood, I, th- I think that it's, it's hard for all of us to admit that we have problems, you know, and, uh, and so, you know, either because we don't want to burden people with our problems or because we're trying to set such a high example, um, and so, so it's always hard for priests, I think, to disclose um, and to enter into that conversation with others. Uh, the older generation really wants to help people, you know, and sometimes the younger generation criticizes the older generation for being so social justice activist mentality. But the reality is they just really care about their people. And so, so they, they have a desire to help them. Um, because they care about their people, they, but then having the difficult conversations, like, you know, like, what are you looking at? How long has it been going on? And, you know, are you willing to get like that conversation is a little scarier for the older guys. Um, the younger guys are at greater risk to have had the problem themselves and not be recovered yet. Um, in either case, and, and I think this is just across the board. 
we all have a tendency to try to tell people to do what we did. Right. You know, like everybody has a story of how their sexuality got integrated. You know, even if your story is, I have always had perfectly integrated sexuality, there's a story about that. And so, so the person who got healed in adoration thinks everybody can get healed in adoration. The person who went to Sexholics Anonymous thinks everybody has to go to Sexholics Anonymous. The person who did therapy thinks everybody should be in therapy. Um, the person who's like a white knuckler, miserable dude thinks everybody should be a white knuckler, miserable, miserable dude. And so, so I think we have to remember that, you know, like all these things can be good. And, and except for the last one, yeah, except for the last, <laughs> except one. for the last one, <laughs> <laughs> but we want to, um, we want to walk people with people and, and discern like, what does this person need? Cause I've worked with guys and working with me, they did amazing. And I've worked with guys who work with me and it's like horrible. And, and I'm like, you need to go to a different therapist, you know, because obviously I can't give you what you need and I might be triggering all their priest issues or something that I don't even know. Um, and some people like they need to be an essay and get a sponsor. I mean, typically my advice is always like go to essay, uh, get a therapist and have a spiritual director. You know, and then your bases are pretty much covered in terms of, of your recovery. And, and so again, like old guys, young guys, um, I think there's a commonality, which is that we tend to be prideful as priests and we tend to be superheroes and we tend to be codependent rescuers. And so we have a hard time making referrals because we really want to be able to help them by ourselves. And that's part of our own surrender, right? Because it's really about surrender. It's not about self-control. It's not about like controlling my passions. It's about like, did I surrender my heart to Jesus or not? Like, and and what is my particular therapy? role with this person? Because I find that even as a therapist, I mean, therapists are notorious for being codependent also for the same right. reason. So because we all want to be the superhero to save everybody's lives. And it's just not the case. Sometimes... I'm getting the baton, so to speak, from some other therapist who did years of work with this individual. And now I'm, I'm just meeting them at the right time and able to push them through the finish line, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But there are often times where I do work with people and maybe minimal growth or something. And I mean, it's great. I'm happy we're meeting. But, you know, somebody else is going to be the one who's going to see the, the fruits of that. And it's a moment of humility for us to remind ourselves that we are not Jesus but obviously that, that, that's what drives um, the shame sometimes for getting help or for being the one who helps. This is Dr. Mario again, and I hope that you're enjoying this episode. If you are, just take a quick second to say a prayer for Father Sean and all the other listeners of this episode. I take seriously that my audience is a community of believers. Even if we are all listening on our own individual devices, we still have moments and opportunities to support one another. And now is one of those times. Pray for the recovery and freedom of the listeners of this episode who are struggling with pornography. Please say a quick prayer for Father Sean and his mission. And while you're at it, please offer a little prayer for myself and my family. Thanks, guys. We've spent a lot of time talking about 
discernment with seminarians, I really do want to just talk for a few minutes about dating. And for people who are in a dating relationship, if somebody feels the call towards marriage and that's the direction they want to go in their life, everything we spoke about applies to you also in terms of getting sobriety so that you can listen to your heart, so you can have purity of heart, so you can be able to see God. What's a, what's a guideline that you would offer for somebody before they even think about dating? How many months of sobriety should, should this person have before they can really give their heart over to, to another individual? Yeah, I usually um, would recommend, I, like how many months is a hard thing because, you know, people yeah. are always going to interpret that with their attic brain and say, okay, I just need a white knuckle for three months and then I can start dating. Um, but But generally three months is what I would say you want to be able to put together. Like most people can white knuckle for 30 days, 60 days. Neurologically, most people say like brain change starts to happen again after three months of, of behavior change. Um, and that's a different podcast about Delta Fosby and, you know, we could save that for another one. Absolutely. CDK four, whatever that is. Um, but so three months is what I would say like they should have before they start dating. And, and so I like my recommendation always for girls is just to say like, okay, a guy asks me out and I go out with him and I kind of like him after three dates. So I probably need to ask him when the last time he looked at porn was. Um, and it's not because I'm being, again, it's no judgment. It's just, I don't want that drama in my life. And so I really want to date you, but I'm not going to date somebody who has that problem. So like get a therapist, start going to a group. And when you have three months of sobriety, come back. Um, and, and just be okay with that because, because too many couples, I know they're kind of in recovery, you know, they're kind of working a program. They haven't really surrendered their life and then they get married and then their, you know, wife gets pregnant or something happens. And, and then all of a sudden they're back in their addiction because they never went through a healing process. Um, and we've gotten those letters at integrity restored where, you know, my husband had a problem with porn, but he was healed by doing a marrying consecration his junior year in college. And he hadn't acted out in two years. And then we got married and I just got pregnant and now he's acted out and my life is over. And how is this possible? And how did God allow this? Um, well, like probably had unresolved father issues. Now he's learning he's going to become a father and he ended up back in his addiction because he never went through a healing process. Um, and I kind of just call that like cleaning out the bottom of the coffee cup or like kicking the bushes to make sure there's nothing, there's nothing potential that's going to get tripped up later. I mean, right. you've probably seen clients where like they're one couple, they're like one way and then they have babies or their baby turns the age that they were when they were abused or something like that. And all of a sudden, I'm living with a crazy person. Like what happened? Yeah. That's a, so the guidelines are there certainly from the, from the start, but I guess my, my mind also goes as a, as a counselor, I'm, I'm always struck by God's providence and by the timing when things almost have to line up that like in therapy, I don't go digging unnecessarily. It may not be the right time for me to go digging, but sometimes that might be the time for me to go pushing into the past. So theoretically, one of these couples could have gone to counseling, could have talked about whatever right. their childhood trauma was but it was disconnected from, from their, from their affect. And it's not until the moment arises later in life where it's like, bam, oh my gosh, now I have to deal with this. And you can't really prepare for that per se. Um, right. 
I mean, you want to be, you want to do as, as much work as possible, but there are some situations where it's not a, I'm not, even, I'm not really not trying to sound pessimistic. It's really just, I believe that God ordains certain times and certain moments. And often it isn't in the most convenient time that we, that we want it to be. Um, and so we, we have to certainly be open to that. But, but what do you think with, with, th- th- again, thinking about girlfriends who have a boyfriend that struggles with porn or even in an early marriage circumstances like you spoke about, if they didn't necessarily follow the three months and get the healing that they needed prior to dating, now this issue is, has become a real issue in their engagement or even into their marriage. What role or what guideline could you offer a girl or woman in that circumstance? Like to what degree should that person be involved in her husband or her boyfriend's recovery? Uh, so she, like when two people get married, they say, I take you as my husband, I take you as my wife, which means I'm willing to receive all of you. And, and so then that means that when they get married, somebody's saying, I'm giving you all of myself, all of my history, all of the things I've ever done. I'm not going to have secrets with you. I mean, that's what that means. And so, so like I talk about on engaged encounter that like couples should, and we should be asking them like, have you disclosed your entire sexual history to each other to include pornography, masturbation, any sexual abuse that's happened in your life? Like those things that we're kind of ashamed of because otherwise you're depriving yourself of the opportunity to feel received by the other person. Because then you're always living with the fear that, well, if they knew everything about me, they wouldn't have married me. And, you know, our sickness is in our secrets. And so, so like that conversation doesn't happen all the time for couples. And then that's why like they get surprised by things when they pop up. Um, And then in terms of like recovery, like does a wife have a right to know that her husband's going to meetings? Like, yes, because he's violated a promise that he made her. Now everything he's ever said is going to be questioned by her and she needs to see movement on his part. Now, most of the wives I know don't want to be their husband's covenantized person because it's too triggering to get the report, but she needs to know that he has a covenantized person. Um, she needs to know that he has somebody that he's checking in with regularly and, and they have to navigate. What does she want to know? What does she not want to know? Does she want to know if he's still relapsing or making progress? And she probably has a right to know if he's relapsing, but she doesn't need to know that he relapsed, you know, looking at red shoes on whatever, thing because then that contaminates red shoes for the rest of her life. Um, and so like skilled therapists need to like navigate this conversation with them and work out what the boundaries are. Um, but I found particularly when there's a wife who has kind of a devotional forgiveness of her husband and patience with her husband, the husband is often an unmotivated client in recovery is often an unmotivated Unmotivated. Yeah. Okay. Because he knows his wife's going to forgive him and there's no consequences and he hasn't felt the pain of his addiction yet. So how do you manage that between her getting upset rightfully out of justice, out of righteous anger, um, with, with the vow to love and forgive and have mercy? 
Yeah, like, do you ever, like, get angry with your children and have boundaries with them? Yeah, of course. Of course. So, like, there has to be boundaries within their marriage, and they love their husband, but, like, I can't sleep in the bed with you right now. And you're on the couch. Like, oftentimes, therapists recommend a 90-day abstinence period when the subperson begins recovery. Um, I'll tell you who gets sober really quickly are the guys who get kicked out of the house by their wives. Yeah, absolutely. Like, those guys, those guys get sober. Um, the guy with, you know, the really understanding wife who's trying to be a good wife, like he doesn't get sober very quickly. Um, because like consequences drive action. You have to feel the consequence of things. You know, it's like the, the alcoholic, you know, who parks his car in the neighbor's lawn and then the wife wants to protect his reputation. So she goes and moves the car into the garage and then the next day she yells at him for leaving the car in the neighbor's lawn. And he's like, what are you talking about? The car's in the garage. Yeah. It's the classic codependent right there. Right? You're just making this up. Yeah. Um, so it's a, it's a dance and it's a hard dance. Um, yeah, there's that- a website called bloom bloom for Catholic women.com. And it's a, it's basically a recovery website for wives, um, when their husbands have sexual addiction and there's just some really good content on there. Um, there's a theology of the body kind of talk that I do and spirituality talk, but Dr. Kevin Skinner is, um, he's very, very good with working with betrayal trauma. And, um, and so a lot of times like I'll even recommend like a girl go to that website and check the stuff out when her boyfriend has a problem. So she realizes you know, what she might be getting herself into if he doesn't get into recovery. Um, and, and wives have to do their own recovery work too, you know, because so often there's like a sex addict husband and a wife who was sexually abused when she was younger and they find each other because she can't recognize red flags because her boundaries were violated when she was younger. Uh, there's a study by Susan Sabolko. Um, she's a Catholic psychoanalyst and she wrote a doctorate on this dynamic and, 90% of her sample population of wives of sex addicts were also sexually abused when they were younger. Um, and so all of that, and again, this is like the graced moment is that, you know, our Lord wants to heal all of it and it's an opportunity to just like heal all of it. And, uh, and when people really lean into their healing process, it's amazing, you know, what kind of transformation that they can experience, you know, and our Lord makes all things new and those words become more real, you know, so we want to delay the number of, you know, marriages where it gets discovered in the midst of their marriage. We do that by like rolling back and protecting our children doing proper education and, um, you know, hopefully raising a generation that like knows the difference between, you know, what is true and what is not true with regard to our sexuality. Yeah. Well, God is merciful and God does desire our healing, as you said. And the beauty of that is when somebody takes that step to be vulnerable and to really admit that they need work, that that healing isn't just for them, but that it is for their spouse and it is for their children and that it makes the whole system better. Um, Mm -hmm. So we certainly want to encourage everybody who's been listening to the show to not be afraid and to, to reach out, if you are a priest and you've been listening to it, Father Sean has graciously opened him, himself up to you um, <laughs> to, to reach out to him. And we have other great resources that I'll have um, descriptions for, or links to rather, um, in, in the show notes. 
Um, so Father Sean, I really appreciate your, your time here. Just a couple final questions that I ask all of my guests. The first, is there, is there anything that you would like to plug? Anything you got going on that you want to tell the audience about? Uh, right now I just plugged, you know, the Catholic website for wives, bloom for Catholic women.com. Um, I am just spending most of my time traveling, doing clergy days. So I'm going to be in Houston in a couple of weeks and March is like New Hampshire, the CPA conference. Um, uh, so my calendar is really full till November. So, so what I really want or would ask is, um, just prayers guiding my own discernment and, um, the discernment of my bishop regarding, you know, like what my pastoral life looks like, you know, um, in, you asked like, how did you come to do this? It, it was really just like what our Lord asked me to do. And I've just been trying to be faithful to him. Um, and, but that's all like within, you know, what my bishop's vision is as well. And so, so to just pray for that because, um, you know, assignment times are coming up for all priests and, and, uh, that's, yeah. And I just want to be faithful to what our Lord calls me to. Amen. Thank you for your humility in that. Absolutely. We will certainly pray for you. And then final question, Father Sean, what gives you hope? Uh, what gives me hope are the number of people that I see having conversions, you know, like conversions give us hope. And that's why, like what gave St. Paul hope at his worst moments he just retold his conversion story, right? Like that's what he does. He's getting told off to go to Rome to go to prison and he just tells his conversion story. And, um, and what I've seen our Lord do in my own life and in the lives of my brother priests and the lives of like faithful that I've worked with and the way that, um, seminaries are starting to take this more seriously. Um, there's a desire in formators to really, to meet guys where they're at and to help them. Um, and, and I really do like think that our Lord is just sort of peeling back a veil so that he can start healing things. Um, you know, a little interesting detail, like Leo the 13th had a vision, the devil would have a hundred years to destroy the church from the inside. And 33 years later was the miracle of the sun. And a hundred years after that was the start of the me too campaign online. And so like the me too campaign has just been a way of pulling back a veil of secrecy and exposing sin for what it is. And, uh, and that's happened in all aspects of life. And, and I really do think that that's just what our Lord is doing. And we find ourselves at this moment of realizing that things did get pretty bad, but that means that our Lord, right, is about to bring about a lot of healing. And, uh, and we have to keep our eyes on that, you know, we have to keep our eyes on that. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for those words, man. It's awesome. Father Sean, I appreciate you coming on the show. God bless Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thanks, Mario. All right. Okay. Have a good day. God bless. Well, that's it, guys. It's a tough topic, but I know we needed to go there. So thanks to Father Sean for his time and guidance on these matters. And thanks to you for listening to the show. Part three of this dating and discernment advice series will be out soon. That episode is an interview with Mary Rose Verrett, 
who along with her husband created a marriage preparation program called Witness to Love. Mary Rose offers some great advice and wisdom on the dating scene, so can't wait to share that one with you too. Please offer your support to Always Hope by subscribing and leaving a review. God bless everybody and have a great day.